All right. Welcome, everyone, to the 42nd Fireside Chat. I would like to remind you this is all made possible by Oliver Weiss in Germany and Justin Snodgrass. Thank you for four years of your service to the Fireside Chat. We've brought you 126 hours of Tom's answers to your questions. So keep it up, and thank you so much to everyone. Um, Tom and the MBT support group will be launching uh, with the help of Beyond the Buzz, a Kickstarter campaign soon. So please stay tuned to the YouTube channel to find out how you can get in on making a difference, getting those physics experiments done, and being a part of history. This is going to be a historical thing. And thank you to Vanessa, who is part of that support group, and who I would like to start today um, asking a question. Please go ahead. Hey, uh, awesome. Thank you, Donna. Hi, Tom. Hello, Vanessa. Uh, so, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing fine. Fantastic. What's your question? My question, I have two. Uh, the first one I'll ask is around um, your theory. So, your theory it ha it really encapsulates everything. It's really the big picture. It includes everything. Um, but my whole life, I've been looking at a lot of different teachers, like Eckhart Tolle, Deepak Chopra. And yesterday, I was even looking at uh, Stephen Hawking's theory of everything. And I, I see that all of them have little pieces of the whole. And yet, your theory includes everything. You're able to step outside of the physical, this physical reality, and explain everything, emotions, um, telepathy, remote viewing, all of this, including this physical reality as well. So my question is, why isn't this why haven't this hit the masses and i mean this is amazing what you've accomplished with this theory and i don't understand why when people hear about it they're not like oh my goodness wow this is incredible what do we need to do in order to have it connect with people um well i think we just have to be patient i think so that's what we have to do um you know everybody who is and it has their own theory and you name some of the people who you know you've you've looked into their theories they're very busy people they're focused on their theory they have a lot of investment in it it explains a lot it seems to uh, work pretty well it's helpful to people um okay it doesn't tell the whole story it just tells part of the story but that seems like it's pretty good because you know not that long ago there really wasn't much of the story at all being being told or understood. So they seem like they're doing something good and they are. And busy people don't really have time to go out and see what else is out there very much because once you get to the point where you are um, well known, well, you are busy. You know, you have lots of things to do. And sitting back and just reading and going through the internet to see what else is out there just kind of falls off the off your mat. So I think it's just still growing. You know, I'm uh, uh, I'm small compared to a lot of those as far as readership and people who know that I exist. And it's just growing. It continues to grow. And as it does, you know, it'll pick up some of these people and some others. Um, some it won't just because, like I say, they have a lot of investment in what they've done so far. And to uh, kind of drop that and hop on another horse doesn't seem like a good idea. Or even to just uh, have a 
know, a different, uh, kind of suddenly take a different perspective wouldn't seem such a good idea. So I think it's just life. It's just the way it is. You know, MBT has been growing more and more people understand it. And the parts that I talk about that other parts don't like, what's the purpose to our existence? What's the meaning of life? What are we supposed to be here doing? Most others don't really go there so much. Or if they go there, like Eckhart Tolle does, then they don't really talk about understanding, you know, the reality and how the reality works and, you know, how things like uh, uh, remote viewing or um, other, not necessarily paranormal, because they're all not paranormal, uh, things that, um, uh, looking for a word here, um, Anyway, it's jumped out of my mind right now. But the, a lot of things that people experience, you know, they don't explain those, those parts of the reality kind of missing from their, from their viewpoint. So why doesn't everybody just drop it and pick up one that explains everything? Well, because mostly they've never heard of it. They don't even know I exist. They've never really dealt with it. And when people might mention it to them, oh, you got to listen to that guy, you know, they're busy. They don't have a lot of time to go listen to that guy. And they just kind of figure, well, you know, he's a oh, virtual reality theory. That's a little crazy. You know, we don't want to go there. Another one of those crazy physicists that thinks we're living in a virtual reality. So it just is going to take time, Vanessa. But people like you are helpful because you help uh, spread the word and get the ideas spread around. And uh, yes, I think Donna was mentioning earlier, I'm going to go see... Uh, uh, Erwin Klee and his group of quantum gravity scientists, and we're going to share ideas. And Klee and I already share a lot of ideas, except he ends up doing the bottoms up. Consciousness is a physical process sort of thing. But other than that, we have a lot in common. We see a lot of things the same way. And the difference between us, and the thing that probably makes me unique, is that he didn't have the advantage of spending 30 years. Goodness, my picture keeps zooming in, zooming out. Yeah, I'm not doing that. My hands don't touch it. It's uh, my camera, for some reason, is unhappy with the way it looks. So it is uh, modifying it as I talk. So if you can not be distracted by that, I can't, I can't uh, stop it. It's, it's you know, Logitech, I guess, is, has a mind of its own. Anyway, I, I, he didn't have the advantage of being able to explore the larger consciousness system, to be able to do research in the larger consciousness system and see how that worked from the inside out. So that was a limitation. I had that advantage. And of all the people you named, I'm the only one that had that advantage. So the real difference between where I ended up and where they ended up is that when they were trying to come up with their theories of everything, they only had to fit all the data points that were physical. Because those are all the data points that they knew, you know, from inside their experience. I had to fit all those data points with my theory. And I also had to fit all the data points, you know, all the things I knew as facts from my exploration of consciousness or what I knew were facts about consciousness and how consciousness worked. So, I couldn't just stop at something that described the physical world. I had to describe the, the um, consciousness world as well. And 
that makes the difference. So uh, Erwin Klee, a very smart fellow, and he's come to a lot of the same conclusions. Goodness, that's even distracting me, having my picture zoom in and zoom out. Anyway, uh, he, uh, you know, he probably did what I would have done if I didn't have that experience in consciousness. He figured out, you know, he, he figured out a way to make it physical because that's all he knew. He didn't have experience in the, in the other. Other than that, what he makes of it is very similar to what I make of it. You know, a larger consciousness system, basically, you know, a virtual reality. He goes to all that stuff because that's logically what works, but he didn't really know where to start. So he had to start with quantum mechanics and physical particles and things. So that's the major difference between us. So that's probably why I am very different than any of the other people who talk about the nature of reality is that I spent 30 years exploring the non-physical and that's unusual really for anybody to do, much less scientists. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I, um, and I understand that you do this and you're able to go to different reality frames and see this really big, have this big picture understanding, whereas nobody else has been able to do that. This is kind of, it's helpful, but it's also sometimes to my detriment because it doesn't allow me to be open-minded to others. So yesterday I was like, I should probably look at some other theories because I really just kind of clung on to Tom's, but what else is out there? So then I look at string theory and I come across Stephen Hawking's and, but then I'm like, these guys are just writing it from this limited perspective. They don't go and travel different reality frames. So why should I listen to them? And that's where I go with it. But um, I don't want to shut myself off from other people's wisdom as well. Yeah, well, re remember what they would tell you if you had this conversation with them is some guy who flies around in other reality frames is probably, uh, you know, having uh, mental issues and probably just making all that up as part of his imagination. And it isn't real anyway. So, uh, you know, don't don't go uh, looking at theories that are uh, being touted by uh, people with grand delusions. See, that's what that's what they would tell you so you have to take all that into your skeptical mind and sort all that out and see you know where that that lands and the only way to sort that out is to say well does it work you know or the things that i'm learning the things that i'm understanding with with uh with say with my model with mbt does it apply you know does it work or is it just because it's just a hallucination and just a uh um, you know, something I make up in my, in my imagination, then it shouldn't really be that effective as far as organizing your life and understanding your own experiences. So that's, other than that, you have to remain uncertain. Stay skeptical. Keep looking around at other things. See how they fit. See if they fit your experience. Um, don't uh, believe what I tell you just because I tell you that. You need to stay open-minded and and stay open to all sorts of other ideas mm, yeah. and use use the ones that work you know the, the stuff that makes the most sense to you then use that and if it stops making good sense to you use something else but that's mm -hmm. the way you approach it a very practical way you have to approach these things again not your truth i mean it's not your experience it's not your truth so uh, as long as your experience is something that uh, is corroborating a theory, then that's the best theory for you. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
That's helpful. Thank you. Um, that moves me into my second question, which is um, around emotions and depression. Uh, so your model has helped me on a practical level, which is why I really appreciate it. Um, and it's helping me to understand emotions. So the question is, I know that we can, our intent modifies speech probability and it can modify um, disease, right? So we can use our intent to focus on healing ourselves. And mm -hmm. so can we also do this to, to, to heal, I guess, depression? It's a mental illness, but um, a lot of people say it's psychosomatic. But then I also understand, like, I'm a very, very positive person. And I, and sometimes I, I'm overcome by this, like, really heavy feeling of, um, of depression. And it just, mm -hmm. and I feel, yeah, and, and I'm like, what the hell's going on? And my life is amazing, and yet I feel like shit. Like, I just want to sleep all day, and I don't even want to get out of bed. Like, that's not cool. And so can I then use my intent to, to I guess, increase the, the, the neurotransmitters in my brain so that it releases more endorphins and dopamine? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, can I, can I do that? Is that something that we can do? <laughs> um. Yes, you can. You know, the mind leads, the body follows. And, you know, we have this, we have this dichotomy between consciousness and the physical that is um, problematic. Sometimes it's hard to say what's causing what. But let's say that you're a person who isn't up all the time. Let's say you're a person who has a lot of stress, a lot of feelings of inadequacy, uh, feeling, you know, insecurities. Uh, we'll pretend that you're like that, Vanessa. That you have these uh, emotional. Pretend I am like that. I know I have insecurities. <laughs> yes. Okay. So we're going to pretend that you're like that, and those things. That's the stress of that. Will will sometime will will can lower your serotonin. Serotonin is a is a chemical that basically uh, creates or serves as neurotransmitters. You know, it helps your, your brain and central nervous system function, okay? And without enough serotonin, you tend to feel depressed. So you can, with all that stress of feeling inadequate and insecure and your things aren't doing right and, wow, I could have done better there and I messed that up and, you know, well, that's the way I am. I tend to mess a lot of things up. You see, you get in that kind of a... a a mood where you're thinking those kinds of thoughts, you can lower your serotonin. And when you lower your serotonin, you feel depressed. So that's the mind leading and the body follows. Now, if you're like that all the time, if you're always in that kind of negative about yourself mood, then your body will just get used to producing less serotonin and it'll just be the way it works now. So now you've modified the physical to the point that it just produces less serotonin because mm -hmm. your stress and your worry and your, your self-depreciation has created that. Okay, now you go to a doctor and a doctor says, well, you seem to be depressed on and off. Why don't we give you some Prozac, you see, or any one of the other 10 or 20 drugs that are in that same family of, what is it, serotonin? Um, reuptake inhibitors, something like that, I believe, is the things that give you more serotonin by keeping it from being absorbed by your body. Okay, so now you get, so now you get, um, 
<clears throat> medicine to increase your serotonin. And the doctor tells you, well, don't feel bad. It's just a physiological problem. You just have brain chemistry issues, just like being a diabetic, you know, and you don't make enough insulin. Well, your body doesn't make enough serotonin. So take these pills and it will fix you. But you see, there's so there's this this physical and the and the mental are um, <coughs> connected in such a way that your mind often creates the physical issues that then you have to deal with. Of course, medicine never works. It looks at it that way. They only look at symptoms and they give you medicines that can help fix the symptoms. So you can cause those little mini depressions where you feel like that and then you pop out of them. And that's because you're not always negative. You don't always have these feelings of, oh, I screwed up. You know, I didn't do it right. I could have done it better. I'm not really all that much. And, you know, if you get into that and stay that way week after week, you know, month after month, you'll actually physically change the way your body works and your body will stop making enough serotonin, you see. But on the other hand, if you get over that and say, okay, you know, I've given all that negative stuff up. I like myself now. <coughs> I'm okay. I'm just going to go out there and live and learn and, you know, let the chips fall where they may and life is going to be good. Well, then your body will start making serotonin again. And then you can throw away your pills and you'll be fine again. You won't have that problem. So this connection between your, your mind and your body, see, now you've changed your body. So let's say you, you're sad and now your body doesn't make good serotonin. Well, now let's say you uh, you get happier again because your life changes. You know, you have something changes in your life. Whatever was annoying you goes away or something. Well, your body's still making less serotonin. You see, it's not going to change on a dime. So it may, you may be depressed for another six months, you know, just to get out of the physical mode that you were in before. So it's a, it's a, it's a problem. So what it is, is that you're just feeling negative and that negativity leads to a serotonin decrease. That serotonin decrease makes you feel depressed and suddenly everything seems to suck. Everything doesn't feel good. Everything is just too hard, too much trouble. What's the use? I'm not really making any difference anyway, and I don't even want to get out of bed. So that leaves you that way. But fortunately, this is not your, your normal way of looking at life. So you pop back out of it and then get back into it now and again. So it's just a matter of getting rid of that fear. It's that fear and ego and belief that make you feel bad about yourself. So when you get rid of that fear, then you won't have these these times when you're sitting around feeling uh, you know, insecure and inadequate and not nearly as much as you would like to be. That'll be okay. You won't, uh, you won't have that problem. All that stuff will go away. You just won't feel that way anymore. You'll feel good about yourself. So it's just a fear, just like everything else in your life. It isn't working nicely. It's your fear that it gets down to. And in this case, it's a fear of not measuring up, not being what you want to be. Okay. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I've never taken antidepressants, but I would always self-medicate. So I turned to drugs and alcohol, and that was, I guess, my escape from feeling like crap. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, now I'm not doing that. And yeah. so... Um, created that space to actually feel those. Yeah, now those, now those drugs and alcohol, boy, they really make you feel good, don't they? <laughs> that really fixes the problem. 
not. That just fixes it very temporarily for a very short period of time, and then it makes it worse in real life. So, uh, yeah, that's the wrong way to go. Um, t taking a little pills is probably better than that because it doesn't mess you up through the rest of your life. But anyway, yes, most people self-medicate before they ever get, you know, to some, you know, to try something else. And that's what drives people to alcohol and to drugs and other things is because they feel bad about themselves. They don't like themselves. They don't like the reality they're living in. So they escape with drugs. That's mm -hmm. the primary thing. It's that fear that drives them to, to those substance abuses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If they like themselves, they wouldn't. They wouldn't want to do that. They wouldn't want to escape. Okay. So then, the antidote to mental illness, because depression and anxiety is, is huge. There's, I think, like three million people in Canada that suffer from this, and it, yeah. yeah, it's terrible. And so then, the cure for that would be just to to get rid of that fear of inadequacy and start liking yourself. Like that's yeah. Just yeah. That's the way you get there but now that's not easy to do it's not like one day you just decide to throw that fear away you know it's something that takes time and some effort you have to understand a bigger picture you have to realize you've got that fear you have to own it then you have to get rid of it not just bury it so it takes some time to do that but just yes, that's the way to get rid of it and you said three million and that's probably a huge undercount because there's a whole lot of people that don't share with anybody that they feel that way. That's just the statistics of the people that went to go see a doctor who made that claim. And that's the doctor that reports that in his statistics. It's mm -hmm. probably, you know, much, much, much greater than that. They only see the tip of the iceberg. That iceberg's a lot bigger, you know, under the water. So it's, it's a large number of people in our society because stress is just a part of our society. Uh, not feeling like you're doing well, feeling like you're on a, on a treadmill that never, never ends. You're not getting anywhere. You're not successful. That is so typical of us in this uh, culture that we've created for ourselves that uh, it's very common. Yeah. How can we, how can we help? And I know like for me, I, I need to obviously get rid of my fear of inadequacy and improve myself. And how can I help those around me to get rid of their fears and their inadequacy? Well, the first thing you can do and the most important thing is get rid of your own fears and be a good example. Be a good, be a good example of somebody who's happy and cheerful and, uh, you know, kind of has their life, uh, you know, on track and, and working well. And when upsets come and things happen that uh, aren't nice, well, you just take it in stride. You know, that's just the way it is. We'll, we'll deal with that in a very positive way. And, uh, being that good example is probably the, the most you can do. Other than that, you can give people better environments. You can give them encouragement. But you know, if you go up to somebody that's depressed and you put your arm around them and you say, you know, you're really a great person. You do wonderful things. You shouldn't feel so bad about yourself. It's not going to help. It's just not going to help at all because they are convinced deep, deep down that that isn't true that there is a problem and they just figure you don't understand. If you knew the me inside, you'd agree with me, you see? So it's very difficult to talk people out of a depression. You kind of have to talk about things. You have to get them to see things that are more positive. 
and and not just focus on what's negative that is the about the only thing you can do you help them see the positive yeah. a, a really great display of that is uh you working with boaz that in that uh, talk that you had with him that's that's, yeah, that's a good example mm -hmm. of somebody helping somebody to see the positive um, and to give them love there was so much love coming from you that you're giving to him so um yeah i appreciated that that video okay those are my questions thank you <laughs> you're welcome So who's next? Is it my turn? Yeah, I think it's your turn. I don't know what happened to Donna, but uh, go ahead. Donna's missing, so I didn't know it was my turn. Hi, Tom. Hello. My name is my name is Cheryl. I'm I'm so thrilled to meet you. I just real quickly, if I could, um, your work not only just helped my life; it saved my life. And I'm a new person because of it. I've worked really hard the last couple of years on my fears and I've, I've come a long way in, in the last two years and the work just completely changed my life. And I just wanted to tell you, I will always be grateful for your work and wanted to say thank you. You're very welcome. I have two questions and um, during my process, when I was doing my fear work, I'm still doing it, but when I first started the first year of it, I kept running into a situation where I would, I, I knew that I was having a fear, but I was so panicked that, that, um, I came to know later on that, Oh, this is my fight or flight response. It's kicking off real easy. Like it has a hair trigger mm -hmm. and it would, it would kick off real easy. And then the next thing I'd know I'm looking for the fear and it was like, I couldn't find it because it, what was in front of me to bring the fear to my attention, it wasn't there anymore. Whatever did it, it was gone mm -hmm. because it could. So here's the question. I just wanted to say that first. And so not long after that, I was listening to one of your fireside chats. When someone asked you about PTSD and the fight flight response being triggered, you said that that was a cop out. Um, so I'm just really confused about that. And can you please explain further with the other things that I said? And then I have one more question when you're done with that one. Okay. Uh, I don't know the context. I don't remember that fireside chat, so I can't really bring back the context of why I said that. But your flight, your your uh, fight and flight is, a, is kind of an ingrained instinctual response that you have. You can't help but have that. When you are threatened by something, you have a you have a propensity to either run, you know, get away from it, ignore it, uh, push it away, stuff it under the rug, you know, whatever you want to call it, avoid it. You've yes. got this propensity to avoid it and uh, distract yourself or whatever your process is of avoiding it. That's one. Or the fight, you can face it. Those are your two choices. Okay. Now, of course, what you what you need to do is face it. Because as much as you run from it, it'll always be there. You can't get rid of it if you run away from it. Sooner or later, you have to face it and deal with it, accept it, and then get rid of it. So that's, you know, that's the, you know, the process. If you always are running from it, then it'll always be there. And it's always going to jump up from behind a bush and go boo. And you're always going to run because that's what you've always done before. And running can take lots of different modes. 
So to, I'm not sure what I said about that's a cop-out, but if it's like, well, I have to run because that's just the only thing I can do. Well, that's not true. I would call that a cop-out. You don't have to run. You can always fight as opposed to flight. Now, fight doesn't mean you have to get violent or you have to beat something up or you even have to, you know, push something away. The fight isn't to, uh, you don't have to fight it to get it back under the rug where you can't see it anymore. That's not the kind of fight I'm talking about being useful. That's really flight. It just seems like you have to fight to, to hide from it. But what you have to do is realize, I have this fear. Why do I have this fear? Why, what is it that creates all this anxiety in me? And you'll take it back to something like, um, you know, when I was uh, two years old, I got bitten by a dog. You know, that's why you're now terrified when you, you know, when you're, you see a dog. So, or that I'm insecure or I'm inadequate. And somewhere in your history, probably when you were a three-year-old, you know, all your siblings got a prize and you didn't or some other such silly thing, but silly things that we look at them and say, well, that's just kind of a silly minor thing. They can affect a child for the rest of their life because that's the beginning of feeling inadequate, of feeling not good enough just because of that, you see. And uh, mom might have had a really good reason. Maybe you were two or three years older and the other two you know, we're uh, much younger and she thought they kind of deserved a prize, but you didn't need one because you were big enough that uh, she didn't have to get one of those little things for you. You were older than that. One of those little things, really stuff that you gave up a couple of years ago. But when you're the child and you see that they got something and you didn't, you don't interpret it that way. You interpret it some other way that there's something wrong with you. So often it's just silly things like that that is the cause of our feelings of being not good enough or inadequate or unlovable or unlikable, you see? And you can't beat that. You can't get rid of it if all you do is run from it. You do have to face it and say, okay, what is that fear? And you don't necessarily have to go back and re-experience it. Some people like to do that, and that's cathartic for some. You just have to get rid of it. You have to say, there it is. And when I start feeling that inadequacy, I'm just going to say, no, I'm not going to feel that way. I'm going to go on with my life and do things. I'm not going to let that fear make my decisions. Now, in the beginning, that's mostly intellectual. But it's not intellectual in the, in the sense that you're not, trying to, you're not trying to push it away. You're not trying to escape it by forcing, by force of intellect. You're not trying to ignore it. You're trying to get rid of it. So you have this intent that says, I want to let that go. I don't want to feel that way. And that strong intent is what's going to change it. It's that intent that changes it. Not necessarily that the intellect refuses to go there. It's that the intent wants to outgrow it, wants to get rid of it. And as you know, whatever your intent has, it modifies probability in that direction. So you just raise the probability that you're going to get rid of it, that it's going to go away when you have that strong intent. And you keep doing this over and over and over, and eventually it gets weaker and weaker and goes away, and then you've won. The fear's gone. So you don't really have to go back to that time when you were three and something frightened you or made you feel inadequate. You can if you like, 
If you do that, sometimes that makes it go away almost instantly because you realize that's the root of my fear. I didn't get a teddy bear and that's been making me miserable for the last you know, 30 years. And that awareness then just lets you let it go. Like that's ridiculous and you see it, but you don't have to go there. If it's so painful, whatever it was that happened to you, it may not have been as simple as a teddy bear. It could have been something a lot more traumatic. And if it's too traumatic to go re-experience it, then just use your intent to not be that way, not to not act that way. It's not about acting. Acting, acting better is nice, but it's not going to help you grow up. Being better is what we're trying to get, and that intent will fix it. So that's what I you know, have to say about it. And I'm not sure what I meant in the other fireside chat saying that that was a cop out, but uh, whatever it is, I've given you my, you know, I, I've given you the same, the same talk here on, on, on it. You know, just as soon as you went into that, I realized, well, cause what happened was when I was really, cause I had an intent that I wanted to work through my fear and of course, it just grabbed me and I went into the undertow, right? So I was in the washing machine for a long, long time. And so finally I went and I said, okay, I'm going to figure out how the fight or flight system works to see if that's where I'm, you know, if I can't get this, you know, because I was just panicking. And I did go and look at that. And as soon as you started talking, you said that, you know, we have, five, you know, because my this is part of my next question, you know, because, you know, the fight or flight has three terrible choices only for me of, of fight, fight and freeze. And when I was looking at the fight or flight system, I noticed that I lacked the fight piece of it. The only piece of the fight flight system that I had was run or freeze, you know, it just freeze me down. Well, mm-hmm. the fight, what happened was, I th- and I think this is happening to others, not just me. The fight part of it, if you never could fight back when things were getting you when you were younger, if you weren't allowed to fight and you were always stopped from doing that, well, you couldn't learn how to do it. So on the fight part of it, I didn't have that piece of it. So what happened, then I finally got, uh, Maya Angelou said that, you know, you have to develop your courage. Your courage is your main virtue because you can't get any of the other ones without it. And so I really worked on my courage and that gave me my, my fight back to where when I finally came into it again, I could just stand there and look at it and say, you know what? It's either me or you <laughs> and I'm not going down this time. So it's going to be you and whatever you are, it, oh, bring it on. And it, it did take some courage to do it. And, but I, I finally worked through that first fear and it took me a whole year. But just as you said that, now I realize what was going on with that. So yeah, the I, only antidote for fear is courage. Nothing else will will diminish fear other than courage. That's the that's the sole antidote for fear. It takes courage to face that fear. I mean, that's why you've been running from it all this time, right? Because it's yeah. scary. You don't want to admit those things. You don't want that. So you no. run away from it and you have yeah. to face it. That takes a lot of courage. I made myself some courage badges. <laughs> these courage badges and I would just put it on just to remind me because you know I've made it this long okay you're there's not any lions or tigers you're not going to eat me and you're just a paper tiger anyway so and I have a courage badge on so you can't get me (laughs) (laughs) and it worked though oh yes thank you so much you're welcome
I'm not sure what's going on with Donna. She's unmuted, but we don't hear anything from her. So, well, in that case, maybe uh, Mercedes, why don't you go ahead and ask your question? Hey. Hi, Tom. Good Hello, to see Mercedes. You. Good How to see you? you again. Yeah, I'm Thank doing you. fine. Very good. Um, thanks for having us and thanks for your time. Um, my question is um, regarding IOCs that come into an extremely challenging and traumatic life experience packets. So um, the reason I'm asking this is because, so once a year I travel to impoverished remote locations to do volunteer work around the world and I encounter quite a lot of horrifying life scenarios um, from disease to hunger to violence, death. I mean, there's so much misery and tragedy I see. And I, and I understand, you know, I understand the MDT model of, according to this model, life is not about just having fun and, you know, being fat and happy and drinking beer, like you say. And uh, sometimes an IOC um, has either signed up and agreed to come into a life experience packet to get a perspective or they're just new and they're coming in and out to get their feet wet. And I'm fully on board with that. It makes complete sense to me personally, um, not from a belief perspective, but from a personal innate understanding of it. Um, but I always run into two problems with this. Um, and one is, how do I, the question is, how do I hold my bigger picture MBT perspective and at the same time be inspired to help, you know, such people lead a less tragic, less tragic lives. And what I mean by that is, I feel like by wanting to help them I'm interfering with their free will in some way. And I'm wondering if I'm imposing and projecting my own Western definition of happiness onto these people by wanting them to have, for example, access to clean water, education, medical care, et cetera. And more importantly though, um, how do you explain this model to a person who's actually going through such misery and wanting a better life? Like they're in a survival mode. Um, all they want to do is survive, you know, and it seems kind of unrealistic for some such people that are burdened such for, with such challenging predicaments to hold an MBT view. And I always get my, my uh, fellow volunteer friends, they always challenge me. They're like, yes, try to um, explain this model to this woman who's watching her teen, your, his teen, her teenage daughter die from hunger and disease, that this is a virtual reality and we're here, you know, having an experience and et cetera, et cetera. And it makes me wonder because I feel like they have a point and, and then it makes me wonder, is this just for us? Is this the luxury that we can afford to sit here and think about like philosophize and contemplate about a bigger picture? Because my, my goal, it kind of ties into Vanessa's question a little bit. Like, I want to be able to connect with these people and bring your theory to these people, you know, because I know my intent is pure. Like I know why I'm doing this. Uh, and, mm -hmm. but I guess for me, it's how do, how do you bring MBT to people that are in that situation? Or is it just, they're not ready for it and they just have to survive now? Well, You've asked about 10 questions, Sorry. Uh, not just one, lots of them, but they're all connected. So I'll try to answer several of them. Okay. Um, oh, let's see, where do we go first? Well, let's start with what you just said there at the end. In some cases, 
they're not ready for that yet. It's not important to them to intellectualize a big picture. It's important for them to survive. It's important for them to find food for their children. That's what is important to them. And trying to bring up a, a picture of this larger reality and how it works and what it's about is just not important. It's not on their, you know, it's not on their top 20, you know, priorities in life is to understand a bigger picture. So if they are ready for it, then as you talk about it, they'll find, they'll be interested in it. If they're not ready for it, they will give you a, you know, they'll let you know in a sense that uh, they just will immediately transmit to you that, no, you don't understand. You know, it's not, uh, it's not like that. Don't tell me about your big picture lady. <laughs> you know, I've got other things on my mind. So when they're not ready, they're not ready. And there's no sense doing that. This is not what they're about in this lifetime. Learning this bigger picture concept and so on isn't where they are. They've got something else to do. So that's one thing. Another thing is that though you see a lot of dysfunction and a lot of misery and a lot of pain, you also probably see a lot of caring and a lot of love as well. Yes, the physical situation is desperate, but there's still people there. The mother still cares about her child. The children still care about their mother. You know, there's still people trying to help each other. And you'll see that in, in families like that, if anybody gets a little piece of food, they share it. You know, they, they take what they have and they, you know, they're all starving to death, but they'll take what they'll have and they'll share it with all the other people rather than grab it and try to swallow it fast before anybody else can get it. So you'll see that even under those circumstances, there is a lot of love, a lot of caring, a lot of making choices, the right choices. And, uh, and yes, they're, they're, they're in pain and yes, they're starving to death, but they're still going to care for each other, even under those circumstances. So you see a lot of beauty in it as well. If you can get past the, the physical trauma, there's a lot of people who are doing remarkably well with their choices and with their attitudes in a terrible situation. They're not all trying to kill each other for each other's food. They are, they're sharing, they're taking care of themselves and their families just as best they can. And that's what they do. So that's the best decision. That's the low entropy decision that they can make at that point, rather than uh, all turn into a, it's all about me and anybody else has something. If they're smaller than me, I'll just hit them and take it away and eat it myself. I won't give it to my kids. My kids have to look out for themselves. If I get something, I'm going to eat it because I'm starving. You see, and you don't see a lot of that, I would guess. You see a lot of good quality among people who are in terrible situations. So there isn't, it's not all bad. There's some good things to learn there. Some very positive choices that can be made. So that's a, another, another point to look at. It isn't all awful. Physically, it's all pretty awful, but spiritually or, you know, from a consciousness viewpoint, there's a lot of love there still. There's a lot of caring there still. There's a lot of people who persevere, even in the way they interact with you. When they interact with you, 
they're not envious because you're not hungry because you know you come from a place of plenty you come from a place that they see as as almost unimaginable privilege and they're not angry at you because you have that and they don't they're not envious they don't want to push you away because you're the symbol of the oppressor or anything like that they appreciate you being there and the fact that you come from a place where you have everything you want and more well they don't hold that against you they're not uh uh, uh what we say they're, they're not angry because of their position oh here look at all this misery i am and nobody's helping me look at all the people in the world who are rich and none of them are sending me their money why don't they send me some money and send me some food why I just get this little bit of measly help when there's so much wealth out there that we all could do better and then get angry about it. And you probably don't run into a lot of anger like that. Maybe some, there's maybe a few that feel that way and feel entitled and feel that they've gotten the wrong, you know, it's unfair and so on. But mostly you find people who accept what they, what, where they are, accept the things that they have to deal with and deal with them in as positive a way as they can possibly do it. So, from a bigger picture, there's a lot of value in that. There's a lot of growth in that. There's a lot of people who are growing the quality of their consciousness in that environment. It's hard to see when you when you just sit there and you're overwhelmed by all the need and by the desperation, but it isn't necessarily a, a negative or even a bad place to go to grow up. Yes, physically it is, but consciously it's not necessarily a bad place. Very challenging, but you have a lot of company. Usually it's not just one starving person by themselves. It's whole populations, whole groups of people. And these people tend to come together for each other. They tend to be a kinder, gentler, less gimme, less grabby people than the people you find, you know, who are who are pampered and, and overfed you know, walking down the street. Those people tend to be greedier and more grabby than the ones that are all huddled together, starving to death. So, you know, which environment do you learn more? Which environment is more profitable to, you know, raising the quality of your consciousness? So you see, it's not necessarily something that a consciousness would, would want to avoid at all costs coming into that awful place. That's just our bias from our material viewpoint of the thing. It's a place where a whole lot can be learned, where a lot can be gained. And there's very little opportunity to express your greediness or express your, your anger. Anger is obviously there, useless. All it does is make you feel bad. That's an obvious thing. Whereas if you're walking down the street of New York, getting angry seems like a, a reasonable thing to do because somebody just elbowed you and somebody just slammed the door in your face and these other things and you get angry and stressed. But there, anger at that situation is obviously a bad idea. It just adds to the misery. They get that, you see? The person in New York doesn't get that. It's a tougher lesson for them. So people who have done a lot of abusive things might like to go there because there's very few ways you can abuse anything in that state. You are really reined in from reaching out and elbowing somebody and getting ahead. So it has its advantages as a place to evolve, you see. Now we get back to the question of, you know, are you overriding their free will? 
Well, those are questions that you have to deal with one at a time. There is no blanket answer for that. You have to look at, at the big picture. You know, what are you, what are you doing here? What, are, how are you helping? Well, if you're there, um, you know, in, instructing them about how to sew their own clothes, that's probably not a good idea because they don't have any material. They don't have anything to work with. You know, it's a useless thing for them, even though it seems like a basic trait that they might need to know. But if you're there to help them find clean water to drink or help them, uh, you know, with their health issues, help them with that, that, that wound or that sore that they've got that hasn't healed for two or three months, well, now that's something that can immediately help them and make their life better. Yes, that's a very good thing to do. So you just have to look and see, what are you doing? Is it really helpful? Or is it just like you say, we're kind of imposing our own viewpoint about the way people should be onto them. So now you could go, you know, you could go into a place, um, you know, like India. In India, they eat with their fingers. They tend to, you know, roll all their food up, you know, because they've got the, the stuff that's sticky, like the rice, and then they got the stuff that's brothy, and they roll that up into pieces that they can eat with their fingers. Well, you could go in there and tell them, oh, that's bad. Everybody needs to use knives, forks, and spoons, you see. And you may think you were doing them a great service by raising, you know, their, their, uh, or I should say, decreasing their exposure to microbes or something. But you wouldn't. You'd be interfering with their life and their lifestyle. They're perfectly capable and, and, and that is not a problem for them. And you'd be trying to fix a problem that didn't really exist, you see. So you have to be careful when you're in cultures that aren't yours that you don't misunderstand the culture and you're not trying to just make them act like you act and be like you are making, you know, the assumption that the way you act and the way you are is the right way. You know, you have to realize, well, maybe in this culture, people eat with their fingers or maybe they do this, or maybe they, you know, catch rainwater in a basket and that's how they find water to drink. Well, you don't have to tell them, oh, don't do that. That water sits there for a while and isn't good for you. You need to let them do it, but at the same time, you're not scolding them for doing things that are perfectly part of their own culture. You can help them find that well or find other ways to get you know, water to them and then let them make their choice. Do they still want to catch it in a bucket and let the bucket sit, or do they want to use this new source that you've created? You've dug a well. Now there's a lot of fresh water comes up from out of the ground. They will let that bucket go in a heartbeat if they have another choice. But to go in and tell them that what they're doing is wrong and not a good idea, even though that may actually transmit some diseases that way, you see, you have to be careful how you tread on other people's habits, on other people's ways of being. And uh, even though, yeah, okay, the bucket sometimes sits there a little long, the water gets a little stale and, you know, microbes and things can grow in it because it's a hot climate. Yeah, that's a problem. But you know, what's the solution? Is the solution any better? Don't drink that stuff because in six months, we're going to have a well. That's not helpful. Six months later, that'd be helpful. Dig the well first, then tell them that it's not such a good idea they drink out of those buckets. You see, so it just depends. Every little situation, you have to look at it from their perspective. Say, if that was me, if I can get into their mind and how they feel and how they think about life, their habits, and see, is that going to be helpful to me?
it reminds me of the of the family who found a family member that they didn't even know they had living out in the woods in a, in a little cabin. And he was a hermit. He'd been out there for, you know, all his life. He lived in this little woods by himself. So they get him and bring him into town and, and uh, you know, dress him up in nice clothes and this sort of thing. Uh, you know, take him to a McDonald's because that's really cool. You know, they do all these things. And suddenly within, you know, six months or a year, he's got cavities in his teeth. He'd been living in the woods for, you know, 40 years and never had a cavity in any of his teeth. But suddenly he's got problems. So sometimes when you try to help people, you're not really being helpful. You don't understand them and what they've been doing and how that's worked for them. So that is an issue. It's an issue whenever you do anything for people. When you heal people, use your intent to heal people. Are you interfering or are you being helpful? Well, you have to the best you can see it from their perspective, see it from the bigger perspective, and then make a decision to butt out or to go help. And each decision you make the best you can. There's no guarantee you're going to be right. But you make that decision, and then you look for the consequences. Is it really helping or is it not? Is this really an important solution or should we maybe put our energy someplace else? You know, don't impose your sense of what's right and what's good on other people. So that is a very good issue, but there's no fixed answer for it. You just have to figure it out. Don't be afraid to make a mistake. If you make a mistake, learn from it. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, because this is, I 100% agree with that. Um, what I take when I come back from, you know, the countries that we label as underprivileged, I see so much spiritual growth there that I sometimes feel like, you know, these people are good. <laughs> you know, they're better yeah. than us. They're doing better than us. There's much more love you know, yeah. amongst those people than us. So sometimes I feel like we're interfering too much. Like, yeah, we want to go out there and we want to volunteer. And But, you know, if the kids sit on rocks and they've been sitting on rocks for a generation and I want to go make chairs for them, like, and it goes back to that healing thing where sometimes hardship is a, a platform for growth. And that yes. is, um, I've had a hard time, um, conveying that I guess um and like for myself like I sometimes come to the conclusion that let these people just be let everybody just be um and just lead their lives however it is mm -hmm. and so but yeah thank you that that um answers yeah a lot, a lot of, of a lot of people when in that very desperate situation we look at them and say oh how sad but if mm -hmm. they actually could could look at us and the way we behave you know, in our culture, they'd probably say the same thing. They'd probably look at us and see the stress, see us rushing around, see all the, you know, the image and the false stuff we do and the greed and the nastiness and the self-centeredness. They'd probably look at us and say, wow, too bad those people, you know, they could just come here and sit on a rock with me. They'd be so much better, you know, poor people. Well, not much we can do to help them. I guess we'll just leave them to their own, you know, uh, stewing their own juice. So yes, you have to have a big perspective like that. Do you really want to bring them up into a culture where now they start feeling more entitled and self-centered and start struggling with each other over resources? And, you know, is that really a good thing or is what they have a good thing or good enough? Exactly. Yeah, it's a, yeah, that's, very that's tricky. A, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky thing to know. 
Sometimes it's good to help. Go dig a well. Fresh water, probably good to help. That's probably not going to hurt anybody. You can get up off your rock, walk over to the well and get some fresh water. That's probably an advantage. So you just have to look and see what are you, what are you doing and how will it help them? How will it really help them with the idea that was not, it's not so important to have all the physical stuff you want. It's important to grow up, to get rid of your fear and your ego. And in those situations, it's probably easier to be loving because you don't have all the choices to be otherwise.